much for that this morning. Uh, you can be seated. Let me invite you to take uh, your copy of God's Word today and join me in the 29th chapter of the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning, and I want to speak to you for the next little while today about unpacking God's plan for your life, unpacking God's plan for your life. The section of Scripture before us today is a very, very familiar passage, uh, especially when it comes to uh, the Old Testament. Probably most of us could not quote more than a dozen or so verses out of the book of Jeremiah. For the largest part, uh, we don't visit that book very often. But uh, the passage before us today is one of the most well-known passages in all the Bible, especially in the book of Jeremiah. In fact, just recently I read a list where somebody had categorized some of the top Bible passages, and it was the top ten Scripture passages. And number one was John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. To my surprise, number two is found in our text this morning. It's Jeremiah 29, 11, where the Bible says, I know the thoughts or the plans that I have toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not to give you evil, but to give you an expected end. So that's what we're going to look at today is God's plans for our lives and how to unpack those plans and how to realize God's best for us. I always say, it's not original with me, I heard it years ago, wrote it down, and I remind myself of it regularly, that the key to a fulfilled life is to discover God's will early in life and stay in it all of your life. Let me say that again. The key to a fulfilled life is to discover God's will early in life and stay in it all of your life. You will be the most fulfilled, you'll feel the most complete, you will feel the most purpose if you understand God's plan, what He wants for you, how He designed you, how He put you together, and what His plan is for your life. Let me give you a little context for Jeremiah 29 this morning. It is said in the scene of 597 B.C. when King Nebuchadnezzar and the rising Babylonian Empire made a move on Jerusalem to, to destroy it. It was really the second of three campaigns that Nebuchadnezzar would launch against Jerusalem. The first one started in 606 B.C. The second one was in 597. And then the, the, the next one was in 586 B.C. But those three waves, here we are in the middle of this campaign. 597 B.C. and Nebuchadnezzar is perched on the doorsteps of Jerusalem. And what he does is he begins to move through the holy city of Jerusalem. He tears down the walls. He desecrates the temple. And the scripture tells us that he carried off into Babylonian captivity several thousand young Hebrews. These were the cream of the crop. They were the wisest of the wise. They were the most well-educated. They were the most uh, skilled in their, in their abilities. And Nebuchadnezzar would kidnap them and deport them and lead them back to Babylon where they would stay for some 70 years. So having uh, been uprooted from all that they knew as their homeland, having been uprooted from everything that they knew that was safe and secure, they were rushed off into a foreign land that was really the center of pagan idolatry. These Hebrews were influenced to try to eat 
the Babylonian diet. Remember, that's what the first chapter of Daniel is all about, where Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat. That's what he's referencing there as they try to make them eat like the Babylonians. They tried to get them to speak like the Babylonians and worship like the Babylonians and serve the Babylonian god of Marduk. And these Hebrews, everything they found dear was turned upside down. And they found themselves living hundreds of miles away from home at the very heart of this pagan society. All of their hopes had been crushed. All of their dreams had been unrealized. And deep inside, no doubt they wondered, how in the world could God allow something like this to happen to his chosen people? If you read carefully the background for Jeremiah 29, 11, what you find is that some of those who had been deported were known as false teachers, and they were saying to the others that had been deported that we're only going to be here for a few days. Don't worry, God's going to get us back to the land. So Jeremiah, listen, he literally writes chapter 29 as a letter. And he sends this letter to those who were deported saying, it's not going to be a few days. It's not going to be a few weeks. It's not even going to be a few months. But you're going to be there for 70 years. And that's where you pick up the scene in Jeremiah 29. Let me show you. Go to verse number 11 and look what the Bible says. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent to Jerusalem or sent from Jerusalem unto the residue of the elders which were carried away captives to the priest, to the prophets, to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had carried away captive from Jerusalem to Babylon. So you see, Jeremiah pins this letter. What's going to be the context of the letter? Go down to verse number 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, dwell in them, plant gardens, eat the fruit, take wives, have sons and daughters, have wives for your sons, give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray to the Lord, for in it the peace thereof shall you have peace. Now, as you move through this, I want you to look at these imperatives. They're imperative verbs. Look at this. He says, build. What are you to do as he writes this letter to the captives in Babylon? Are you to, are you to live in despair and give up? Or do you throw up your hands because you're living in a foreign land? Are you to throw in the towel because things have not gone your way? Jeremiah says, absolutely not. I want you to build. That's what he says. Look at the next one. He says, dwell there. He says, then I want you to plant. I want you to eat of what you have planted. I want you to seek the peace. Yes, your environment may be difficult. You might be in a situation that is less than desirable. But if you will make the best of that, if you will persevere, if you'll continue to keep your eyes on the Lord, you can move forward. Really what Jeremiah is saying is don't let Whatever difficulties you find yourself in prevents you from moving forward. You know, I am told that, that elephants in a circus, that they are trained when they are small, as they're chained to this stake in the ground, they'll never, they're not able to pull that stake out. 
But as they grow older, those elephants could pull that out with no problem at all, but they have been conditioned over their many years of being chained to this stake in the ground that they're unable to pull it out. So they just stay there. Jeremiah is saying, don't let negative situations and circumstances chain you down to where you look like you're living in despair for the rest of your life. Yes, you may be in Babylon. Yes, you may have the influence of a pagan culture swirling all around you, but don't let that keep you from moving forward. He says, just go ahead and be the best that you can while you're in Babylon. Build and plant and marry. Let your children marry. Build a life there. Even in Babylon, if you know the Lord, he says you can build a wonderful life. It may not be as ideal as what Jerusalem would offer, but listen, God is not a place. God is a person, a spirit. And if you have the Lord on your side, wherever you're living, Whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're going through, if you will walk with him, God will bless your life. That's really what Jeremiah is saying here. So go ahead and build while you're there for those 70 years. Go ahead and plant, harvest, marry, let your children get married, and just work to be an influence for God wherever you are. And really the message that God gives to the, Bab- to, uh, the Jews in Babylon that day is the message that he gives to us today. Wherever you are, Live for God. Whatever your circumstances, try your best to influence others for God. You see, when God uses this letter to write to those captives, he says, although your world has been turned upside down, just remember that God's not forsaken you. God's not forgotten you. He's not deserted you. God is still on the throne, and God still has a unique plan for your life. And our world is not unlike that of the Babylonians. It seems as though in America every day we are becoming less Christian and more secular. It seems as though that we are picking up steam and going not toward God, but away from God. And I wish I could say to everybody here today that you're born in the greatest time in the history of humanity. In some ways, that might be the case with the conveniences of modern technology, but it certainly doesn't appear to be the case the way our morals and values and our ethics are trending today. But just because you are born at a hard season, that does not mean that God cannot do wonderful things in your life. It is a great time. To know the Lord. Any time is a great time to know the Lord. And I will say my generation and your generation probably have seen a better life than any generation that's ever come before us. Sure, times can still be hard, but wherever you find yourself, if you will live for God and trust Him, God will give you a wonderful, wonderful life. I wish I could say that we are now living in the times of a great revival. But what is the sad reality of church in America? It's not, it's not trending upward in attendance, it's trending downward in attendance. Um, but yet I do believe there's still pockets that we are seeing in America, particularly in the lives of some young, young people who have, who have noticed what's happening around us in this culture, and they, they feel a strong connection to God, and they don't want to defile themselves with this world, and they want to live different than what they've seen others live. And I challenge you to do that as well. Nonetheless, this is where we find ourselves. We're living here in 2023 with all of the challenges, all the struggles that we face. And what are our options? We too can get cynical or we can get bitter 
Or we could say, I wish I'd lived in a different environment or a different time or a different season and just do nothing. But that's not what God would want us to do. What does he want you to do right here in 2023? He wants you to live your life for him. And while you're doing that, to go ahead and to build and to have a family and to plant crops and to grow and to just take care of your life and just have a wonderful life, in the Lord. That's what he's asking us and calling us to do. And all the time while we're doing it, we're to influence people for the Lord. He also says later on in the text, he says, while you're doing all of this, pray. He said, pray for the peace of the city. So while you and I are building a family, while we're building our lives, we recognize that many in our culture don't know the Lord. We pray for them. And we pray to be a godly influence in their lives. So, for the balance of our time, I want us to look in Jeremiah 29 and move through some of these verses. And I want us to see the importance of unpacking the plan that God has for each of our lives. Okay? So, first of all, before we can unpack His plan, it's essential that we know that God has a plan for us. Now, these are not unfamiliar verses to us. We've looked at them a number of times in different contexts or different sermons, but I want to revisit that today. And first of all, note that God has a plan for you. Now, this is you individually. Look in verse number 10. For thus says the Lord, that after 70 years are accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you, and perform my good work toward you and causing you to return to this place. Now, in that passage, you see God has a plan, not just for them, but for you. And here in this context, there's some good news and there's some bad news. The good news is, one of these days, you're going to get to come back to your homeland. The bad news is, that's going to be 70 years away. Seven decades. That's almost an entire generation. There will be people, no doubt, born who were Jewish people, born into Babylonian captivity, who would die before they ever got to come back to their homeland. Seventy years they would live there. God says you'll spend this 70 years, hundreds of miles from home in prison in the very heart of worldly pomp and idolatry. Actually, if you know the history as to why the Babylonians came to Jerusalem. It's recorded for you in the book of Chronicles. What happens is God had said to the Jewish people, you can go ahead and plant your crops every six years. Just do it for six years in a row. But on the seventh year, you've got to let the land rest. Don't plant any crops. Don't harvest any crops. Don't work the soil. Don't till the land. You have to let the land rest so that it can rejuvenate and the nutrients will be added back to the land. And then the next six years will be even better if you'll let the land rest. The Jews didn't do that. They ignored that from God, and they were supposed to give the land a Sabbath every seven years and let it rest. But they didn't. And uh, they did that for 490 years. So they owed God 70 years. So God just allows Nebuchadnezzar to come in to transport or deport many of the Jews back out of Jerusalem into the Babylonian captivity so the land would lay there and rest and God would get those 70 years back that they, they owed him. So God is working behind the scenes. And he plants them there in Babylon, not so they'd live in despair, but so that ultimately they would know, listen, I'm still working my plan in your life. Right now, it's to have you in Babylon. But one of these days, I'm going to bring you back to your homeland. But while you're here, plant, build, 
marry. Let your kids marry. Pray for the peace of the city and do everything that you can to influence other people for the gospel. Listen, did you know, while, while this Babylonian captivity was going on, that some great things happened for God. Did you know that? Many portions of the Old Testament were written during the time of the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah, the book we're reading right now. Lamentations. Many of the Psalms were written during this time of Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel. Daniel. Several others written during this time. What if they had just put their pen down and gave up because they were in Babylon and the circumstances were bad? Do you know it was during the Babylonian captivity when many of the Jews began to compile the canon of Scripture, the Old Testament? Do you remember, you remember when the Magi came to seek the newborn king of the Jews when Jesus was born in Bethlehem? Remember that? And they came from, the Bible says, they came from the east. Why in the world would there be believers who were coming from there to look for the newborn king of the Jews? It is because of the people who were taken off into Babylonian captivity continue to share that message that God's going to send a Redeemer and a Messiah. And lo and behold, here they come years later to see the baby Jesus who indeed would be that Messiah. So while they are still in Babylon, God was still working in their lives. Maybe you are working a job today that you do not like or you do not fulfill in that job and you maybe feel like you are in Babylon. God's word would say, give it your best. Do the absolute best that you can while you are there. Be faithful to God while you are there and God will help you as you move forward. He'll either bring something better along for you, he'll use you there to influence others or he'll, he'll give you that love for the, and appreciation for the role that he's put you in. Maybe it's just uh, your whole situation of life. You're not happy right now. Listen, serve God where you are, and God promises that he will bless you for doing that. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is Joseph. Joseph was roughly 17 years old when his brothers betrayed him and threw him into a, a well. Going to kill him. But decided at the last moment to sell him into Egyptian slavery. And when the Ishmaelite travelers came along, they tied him to the back of the wagon and they led him to Egypt. The Bible says that Joseph died at 110 years old. If he was roughly 17 when he went off into slavery, died at 110, what, Joseph of what, 93 years is how much time he spent in Egypt outside of his homeland. Never to return again, basically. Or not for a long season anyway. But spent the large portion of his life in Egypt not in, in his homeland. He could have been bitter and cynical and critical and angry toward God, but you never find that in Joseph's life. Think about all that he went through. His brothers betrayed him. He goes to, he goes to Egypt as a slave, and God blesses him in such a way that because he is living for the Lord in, as a slave, that God puts him in a position where he is he is working as a houseboy in Potiphar's house, and he just kind of rises to the top of that. And then Potiphar's wife makes a false accusation against him, and Joseph ends up in prison. Up and down is his life, but even in prison, he's not angry, cynical, or bitter, or feel like God has forsaken him. The Bible says that Joseph even rises to the top while he's there in prison. Did you know that? And that, and that uh, was it the baker or the butler? One of the two. I think it was the baker that had promised to remember him when he got out of prison. And for two more years had forgotten all about him and let Joseph languish in the prison. But he was not, again, bitter or cynical or angry toward man or God. And then when he finally gets out of prison, 
He is elevated to the second in command just behind Pharaoh in charge of the distribution of grain for all of the land as a potential famine was on the way. And Joseph, everywhere he went, he would rise to the top because he refused to be cynical and negative and bitter and angry. Wherever he was, he would take those words of Jeremiah, build, plant, eat, grow, develop, mature, Just do the best that you can with where you are and what you have at the time and live for God and God will bless you. And then years later, listen to what happens. Joseph finally comes face to face with his brothers who sold him into slavery. And Joseph gave to his brothers that day his life's motto. And it'd be a great motto for me and a great motto for you. Always remember this, listen. Joseph looked those brothers right into the face And of all that he's been through, slavery, false accusations, prison, you name it, he looked at his brothers and he said, what you intended for evil, God intended it for good. Isn't that a great way to look at life? Isn't that a great motto to have? You see, the devil, the Bible says he is a liar and he's the father of all lies. The Bible says that he came to kill, steal, and destroy, and he wants nothing more than to make shipwreck of your life. He wants nothing more than to grind you down and to beat you down, and the devil intends everything for your evil. But look him in the face and say, devil, what you intended for evil, God's going to work it out for my good. If I will continue to follow his plan and to build and to eat, and to dwell, and to build my life, and to build my family. Because, listen, the Bible says no weapon formed against us will prosper. So that's a wonderful motto for us. What you intended for evil, God intended it for good. So notice, he says in verse 10, I'll visit you after these 70 years are up, and I'm going to bring you back to your place, back to your homeland. Verse 11, for I know If you read the King James, it says it this way, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Some translations use the word plans. I know the plans that I have for you. It comes from a word that means intentions. God says, I know the intentions that I have for you. What does God intend for your life? What are his intentions for your life? If I were to ask you today, do you know why you exist? Do you know why you're here do you, know, do you know what God wants from you? Many people in our society wouldn't have a clue how to answer that. But God wants us to know why we're here and what he has planned for us. He says, I know the intentions that I have for you. God has a good plan for you. Rick Warren, several years ago, uh, authored The Purpose Driven Life, And he writes about God's plan for your life. I think I've shared this paragraph with you on occasion, but listen to what he writes. Listen carefully. He says, you are not an accident. You are not an accident, and your birth was no mistake. It was no mishap, and your life is no fluke of nature. Your parents may not have planned you, but God did. He was not at all surprised by your birth. In fact, he expected it. Long before you conceived, you were conceived by your parents. You were conceived in the mind of God. He thought of you first. It's not fate, nor chance, nor luck that you're breathing at this very moment. You're alive because God wanted to create you. Now listen, did you hear that? You are alive today because God desired to create you. 
He goes on to say, God prescribed every single detail of your body. He deliberately chose your race, the color of your skin and hair and every other feature. He custom made your body just the way he wanted it. He also determined the natural talents you would possess and the uniqueness of your personality. Because God made you for a reason, he also decided when you would be born and how long you would live. He planned the days of your life in advance, choosing the exact time of your birth and your death. Most amazing, God decided how you would be born. Regardless of the circumstances of your birth or who your parents are, God had a plan in creating you. It doesn't matter whether your parents were good or bad or indifferent. God knew those two individuals possessed exactly the right genetic makeup to create the custom you that he had in mind. Many children are unplanned by their parents, but they are not unplanned by God. God never does anything accidentally, and he never makes mistakes. He has a reason for everything he creates. Every plant and every animal was planned by God, and every purpose or person was designed by God with a purpose in mind. Isn't that wonderful that God has designed you the way you are for a reason? He allowed you to be born when you were, to the family in which you were born, and the place in which you were born, all because he is unpacking or he's unfolding this plan, this beautiful plan that he has for your life. So yes, God has a plan. But secondly, I want you to know that his thoughts or his plans, they're always good. God is never against you. He's never working against you. He's always working for you. Every plan that he has, every intention that he has. It's for your benefit. It is for your good. Look in verse 11 again. He says, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Look at this now. They're thoughts of peace, not evil. To give you an expected end. One translation says, to give you a hope and a future. What is God's intention for you? It's not evil, it's good. It is to give you an exp a hope. It is to give you a future. It is to bless you with a great plan that he has designed for your life. One of the most difficult emotions in the human condition is feeling uh, a sense of being forgotten. No one wants to be forgotten. Uh, I remember hearing... Uh, uh, a person say upon, upon Kobe Bryant's death, Kobe Bryant was a great basketball player killed in a helicopter crash a few years ago. He said, Kobe Bryant used to often say, he said, I wanted to be the best basketball player in the history. And he said, I want to die at a young age, at an early age. And my goodness, what a self-fulfilling prophecy that must have been. What he was saying is, I want everybody to remember me when I was like in the prime of my life, not not as I've lost all of my skills and all of my abilities. He said, I want, to be, I want to be remembered. So part of the human condition is a fear of being forgotten. Sometimes elderly people in a care facility can feel like the world has forgotten them. Sometimes a young person going off to college or to the military for the first time, they can be lonely and they can feel like the world has forgotten them. Or maybe a young person who didn't get invited to a, to a peer group's activity to a party or to, a, to, a, to an event that a peer group was having, they can feel like they've forgotten and that nobody cares about them. Our law enforcement officers, our military, our soldiers, people oftentimes can feel 
forgotten. And when I say feel forgotten, it is a sense that the world doesn't even recognize who you are. You know, may I say to you this morning, that may be true for all of us because this world doesn't give two hoots about you. But I want you to know that you've got a God in glory who loves you with an with an everlasting love and he is very interested in you and he has designed you and he has made you and he knows the hair on your head and has them all counted. The very God whom the Bible says holds the world in the palm of his hand. Listen, he has created the stars and the Bible says he calls them by name but he is so interested in every one of us and his thoughts and intents for us that the Bible says he knows you by Name. Jesus said, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly Father knowing that. Listen, the world doesn't care much about you or me. And you might find yourself in the furnace of pain or the sorrow of difficulty. And you can't see your way through. But I want you to know, Jesus will never leave you. He'll never desert you. He'll never forsake you. For these captive Jews living in Babylon, what do you think was going through their mind? Oh, life would be so much better if I were back in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's got to be better than Babylon. But they, they were mistaken in that thinking because, again, God didn't just live in Jerusalem. God was right there with them in Babylon. That's why he said, eat and build and plant and marry and live your life and build a good life here in Babylon. And one of these days, I'm going to bring you out of this situation. They, they, were, they, they were thinking, man... If we could just get back to Jerusalem, all of our problems would be solved. If we could just get back to Jerusalem, where we could worship God there, we wouldn't have a problem anymore. So Jeremiah writes this letter to say to them, listen, that's not God's plan. God's plan for you is to bloom where you're planted. Amen, church? To be the absolute best that you can be wherever you are. I don't know anyone who has ideal circumstances all the time, but wherever we are and whatever those circumstances are, God says do the best you can. Build, eat, plant, live, raise your family, live for God, influence others while, who are around you, and pray for the peace of God to flow in the lives of those who are around you. You see, the Lord Jesus said, love God with your heart, soul, mind, and your strength. That is to love him with everything that we have. So look at this now. Now listen, you can be a great success in life, but if you leave God out of your life, then your life will be empty and hollow. So the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you. They're thoughts of, of good, not evil. They'll give you to expective end. Look in verse 12. Then, now look at this, shall you call upon me and you shall go and pray to me and I will hearken unto you. That is, God's plan as it is unpacked becomes more clear as we pray and as we ask God to reveal himself to us and we understand his plan for our life. Verse 13 says, and you shall seek me and find me. Now, that is conditional, all right? It's a conditional clause. What is it conditioned upon? You will seek me and find me when? Look at the remainder. When you shall search for me with all of your heart. Uh, some of our graduates may even be in this service this morning. But I would say if you go to college from this place or you go into the workforce from this place, wherever life takes you, seek God with all of your heart. Have a hunger and a desire to know Him and to live for Him, and your life will be meaningful. In 1923, a group of the world's wealthiest men gathered in Chicago, 
And it is said at the time of their gathering that these men controlled more wealth than, than the entire Treasury Department of the United States. 27 years later, that group of men listened to some of the results of just seven of those men. Jesse Livermore, a Wall Street baron, committed suicide. One of the wealthiest men in the world at that time. Leon Frazier, the president of a huge banking company, committed suicide. Ivor Kruger, businessman, committed suicide. Charles Schwab, president of the largest steel company the last 10 years of his life, he lived broke and bankrupt. Arthur Cutton, a great wheat speculator, died penniless. Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange, was convicted of a crime and went to Sing Sing Prison. Albert Fall, a member of the president's cabinet, was pardoned from prison so he could go home and die broke. All of these individuals who at one time were so wealthy, they controlled the masses and they controlled great um, amounts of money. But because they couldn't control themselves, they, many of them died and their lives were a mess because they miss God's perfect plan. So God has a plan. His plans are always good for you, never evil for you. But thirdly and finally, I want you to note how God invites you to follow this plan. You see, it's one thing to believe that God has a plan. It's another thing altogether to know and understand what this plan is. You say, well, Pastor Darrell, how can I know that? Well, look at what he says in verse 13 again. And you shall seek me and find me. When you search for me with all of your heart. Did you hear that? That is for every one of us. When you seek God, you will find him. If you search for him with all of your heart. He's not deliberately trying to hide from you. He is just simply saying, be intentional about desiring a relationship with him. Seek him. And when you do that, you will find him when you search for him with all of your heart. Let your desire be to know God. And when you know God, everything else in life will be added unto your life. That's what the, the Lord said. Seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. But let me say that again. If you'll seek God first and have that hunger and that desire to know him and to know why you're here and how he created you to be here. If you'll put him first and let everything else in your life flow from that. Your life will make sense. God has a plan. I really believe he has a plan for who you're to marry and when you're to get married, where you're to work, what kind of work you're to do for every relationship you're supposed to have. I just believe God's plans are very intricate for us. But sometimes what we do is we might get focused on a career or focused on, on, on building an empire of wealth or focused on some other ancillary issue and every now and again just kind of throw God in the mix. That's not what he asks us to do. He asks us to put him first, to seek me. And you will find me, he says, when you search for me with all of your heart. You say, well, Pastor Darrell, I've just made so many mistakes. I've just messed up in so many ways. Listen, everybody has. But the beauty of this thing is, listen, it's not necessarily wrong to be where you are. It's just wrong to stay there. And God wants to take you from where you are and continue to unfold the remaining years of his plan for your life. He said, I know the thoughts I have toward you, the intentions. It's plans not to bring evil or to harm you, but to plans for you to prosper. And you can uncover that when you seek me and you search for me because you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. That's what he says in verse 14. Look, I will be found of you. 
Some people are searching for meaning and purpose, but they look in all the wrong places. And they may move from relationship to relationship, or they may move from city to city or job to job, and they're looking for something that seems so elusive. But God says, listen, if you will seek me, you will find me. I will be found of you, but you've got to search for me with all of your heart. And what many people are searching for is a substitute for God, although they don't know that. But they're searching for something that would give them purpose and meaning. A, a big thing that we are hearing more and more about, and I'm going to close with this, is the advent of what's called artificial intelligence, AI. It's in the news quite a bit nowadays. And there was one author, uh, Neil MacArthur, uh, at the University of Manitoba. He writes about the future of artificial intelligence. And it's already been documented how um, certain people have uh, had holograms uh, played and then ha have had an emotional attachment and fallen in love with the hologram. And he writes about some of that. Listen to what he says. He says, we're about to witness the birth of a new kind of religion. In the next few years or even months, we will see the emergence of sects devoted to worship of artificial intelligence. Now, did you hear that? We will, he will see religious groups, that's what he says, devoted to the worship of artificial intelligence or AI. The latest generation of artificial intelligence powered chatbots have left their early users awestruck and sometimes terrified by their power. These are the same emotions that lie at the heart of our experience of the divine. People already, now listen carefully, already seek religious meaning from very diverse sources. For instance, there are multiple religions that worship extraterrestrials. As these chatbots become used by billions of people, it is inevitable that some of these users will see artificial intelligence as higher beings. There are several pathways to which AI religions will emerge. First, some will come to see AI as a higher power. Generative AI that can create new content possess several characteristics that are often associated with divine beings. And he outlines five of them. Number one, it displays a level of intelligence that goes beyond that of most humans. Indeed, its knowledge appears limitless. Number two, it is capable of great feats of creativity. It can write poetry, compose music, and generate art. Number three, it is removed from normal human concerns and needs. It does not suffer physical pain, hunger, or sexual desire. Number four, it can offer guidance to people in their daily lives. And then number five, he says it is immortal. So he says generative AI will produce output that can be taken for religious doctrine. It will provide answers to metaphysical and theological questions and engage in the construction of complex worldviews. Generative AI itself may ask to be worshipped or may actively solicit followers. We have already seen such cases, like when the chatbot used by the search engine Bing tried to convince a user to fall in love with it. And then finally, AI worship possesses several notable risks. The chatbots may ask their followers to do dangerous or destructive things, or followers may interpret their statements as calls to do such things. 
Now, those kind of things blow my mind because I'm kind of simple in my thinking. But can you imagine a world in which our teenagers may move into one of these days where that artificial intelligence can become a sect of a religious group and they would worship this artificial intelligence? It's because people are so hungry and they want life to matter and they want to know that they matter. And they want to know that they have not been forgotten. And they're searching, but many of them just search in the wrong places. God says, listen, I've got a plan for you. And my plan is always good. And it's never to harm you, but it's to, to help you to prosper. And, and I want you to be invited to follow my plan. That's what he says in verse number 14. As he invites us to follow his plan, he says, you will be found of me. I don't know what the next generation will encounter. We've seen a great deal of change in our generation. And if the uh, Lord tarries his coming, the next generation, I believe it'll pick up speed in the changes that they will see in life. But the one constant is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God is always on his throne, and he's always inviting you to come. And I don't know what his plan is specifically for everybody or generally, but I do know specifically it is this that his plan is that you come to know him. In fact, that's why he sent his son to die on the cross for you, that you would have eternal life, and that this plan that he has made for you, that you could unfold that plan, and you could have meaning and purpose in life. The psalmist said it this way as we close, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. But it's got to flow from him. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart.